0: so you need to stay standing for just a little longer. I think, you know, physically you're capable of that, so, you know, way to go. Hang in there. Um, want to celebrate what I told you last week about Brian and Angela Knedgen, and Martell is the big brother. They had twins, Roland and Rose, adopted into their home, and so Brian and Martel are in church this morning, and... Uh, strategically, I might add, that Angela is home with two small children. So, well played, Brian. Well, well played. So, I, I want to I say just real quick, I'm so grateful to our worship team and to Josh um, because of the way they lead us in worship and specifically because of the songs that we sing. And I've, I've said often, Presbyterians sing our faith. We sing our theology. And I'm part of a pastor's group. Uh, on online and and there was actually this came yesterday. There was a study that a seminary professor did of the top twenty five worship songs that are kind of current and compared their content to the Psalms, which is arguably the original hymn book, right? And none of the top twenty five worship songs talk about the poor, the lost the needy, there are no cries out to the Lord because of problems and challenges that are faced. It's, it's all oriented in a wholly different way. That's not, not horrible, we, we wanna praise, but there's a whole section of our faith and what faith means in terms of are we doing justice in the world and yet this morning, Josh picked that new song which talked initially about the poor and the lost and the weak and the lonely and, and we, we sang hymns that incorporated uh, all that we are called to be as the body of Christ. So anyway, well done and um, appreciate that. So let me pray as we come to God's word. Thank you, Lord, that you are, you are God worthy to be praised. Absolutely. Um, but you also call us as we have praised you. Uh, Father, as we are in relationship with you, then you you call us into the world to live in a particular way, Uh, as Micah reminds us, um, that we're to do justice. What does that look like? What does that mean for us uh, as a people? Where do we find hope uh, for justice in the world? And so I thank you for what we have sung. I thank you for the word that you bring to us now and ask that you would open our hearts uh, to it today and teach us. Uh, about those ideas, and overcome, uh, Lord, the sin of my life, and uh, that you today alone would be honored and glorified. For we pray in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this is uh, Peter's second letter to the church at large, third chapter, beginning in verse 11. It's verses 11 to 14. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives, "'as you look forward to the day of God "'and speed its coming. "'That day will bring about the destruction "'of the heavens by fire. "'The elements will melt in the heat. "'But in keeping with his promise, "'we are looking forward to a new heaven "'and a new earth, the home of justice. "'So then, dear friends, "'since you are looking forward to this, "'make every effort to be found spotless.' blameless, and at peace with him. This is today for you, his church, the word of the Lord. And may its spirit teach us about the nature of his kingdom as a just kingdom and what that means for how we live our lives. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So growing up as a member of the, uh, of the Swanson household was no picnic, but I will tell you that we never... Uh, had there was never any ambiguity whatsoever about what was right, what was wrong, and what was just and When you think about who my parents were, there was no way it was ever going to be anything other than that for heaven 's sake, my dad was a lawyer, he grew up with next to nothing on Long Island in New York, gets scholarships for college and law, and law school, moves to Dallas, starts practicing in one thousand nine hundred and sixty and today, at the age of eighty nine he still goes to the office five days a week he loves The law. He's been about the law his whole life. You've never met a man who has more integrity and a higher sense of what is right and just than my dad. My mom's the same way, came from the Midwest, Illinois, moves to Dallas for college. She becomes a school teacher, right? So she spends 42 years essentially trying to help children understand right and wrong and how to live in a positive way as they build character of person and spirit. So what that meant for me and my siblings is we were expected to do the right thing, and if we did the wrong thing, then there were going to be consequences to that. For example, I'm in seventh grade, it's the summertime, I'm going into eighth grade, play baseball, and when those moments where there's no one to play with, I'd go down to the local elementary school, which was in a U shape, and I could go into the middle of the U with a ball and a bat, throw up the ball, smack it against the wall, and the ball was essentially contained. Right, so I could play there for a long time, and yes, there were three large plate glass windows real high that looked down on the gymnasium below on the other side, but I, I couldn't reach those, but one time I did, and I threw that ball up in the air, and I hit this ball, and I thought, oh my gosh, and that baseball went right through this enormous plate glass window, and then the whole thing, it just breaks, and you just hear it crashing on the gym floor, but then I did what we all do. Nobody saw that. People, it's the 70s. There aren't security cameras, right? So I'm like, the only evidence is the ball that's now in the gym didn't have my name on it. So I'm like, I'm out of here. So I rode my bike home. I even went back the next day on my bike just to see what's going on. They boarded it up with, you know, plywood. And I went back home and I thought, I'm home free. Nobody saw except for the problem that I knew I wasn't home free. Because deep in my guts, implanted in me, I knew that was wrong. And I was 100% eaten up by the guilt that I felt in that situation until finally I went to my dad and I, I told me, I said, Dad, here's what happened. And what my dad taught me in those moments was not just right and wrong, but also a sense of what is just If you look up justice in the dictionary, it's defined like this, the principle or ideal of just dealing or right action. So what my parents taught me was it wasn't just about confessing, but if you'd wronged someone as far as it was possible for you, you needed to make it right. You needed to do the right thing. And so my dad was super calm. He didn't get mad. He said, David, I understand it was an accident. You mean to break the window, but you still need to go to the principal, and you need to apologize, and you need to tell him you're going to pay back every dime for the cost of that window. And I will never forget the agony of mowing lawns in the hot Texas summer, knowing that I would never have access to a dollar of what I was earning. I was all going to go to pay 600 and some odd dollars for that plate glass window, but I will tell you, I remember when I went and gave it to the principal, and I said, here's Here's the debt I owe you. I had a deep sense of personal satisfaction that I did something wrong, but I righted it. I made the wrong right, and I restored what had been broken. And people, I'll tell you today, sadly, I think that whole concept and that whole idea has been so lost in our culture. The idea that people would own their stuff take responsibility for what they've done, that anybody would raise their hand and say, yep, I did it, I own it, my fault. What do I need to do to make it right? You know, I told you a few weeks ago, I had a a terrible car accident at the end of May. And and it was totally my fault. I'm in a left-hand turn lane, and I turned in front of a, a truck that I never saw, and I got trucked. That's a whole other story. But, you know, whenever there's an accident, never been in a wreck like that before, but a lot of people gather. And so I'm I'm not in my right head, but I've gotten out of the car. There are firemen, police officers, and then they're just a bunch of bystanders. And the police officers come up to me and they start asking me questions. And they said, what happened? I said, well, I was in the left-hand turn lane and it was my fault. I turned in front. And as soon as I said those words, it was my fault, all the people around me start whispering, don't say that. Don't, don't admit Dad. What are you doing? And the pers- there are people behind the police officers. The police officer can't see, and they're going. And I, and I go, but it was my fault. What, what am I supposed to say? We, ju- we just don't want to do the just right thing. And, and then the reverse is also true. When injustice is visited on us, someone breaks into our home. They take our screens, our technology, our TVs, our computers, our smartphones. Please come. They interview. Nobody's ever caught. Or maybe you get to the end of your year in your business and you find that somebody's been stealing from your company, embezzling money. But you can't quite put your finger on who did it. And it's just, in both instances, it just leaves you mad because there's something that someone has done wrong to you and you want it righted. What do what, what we see in the world? Maybe to me that's the most troubling. Vladimir Putin is bombing shopping malls and apartment buildings and yesterday a university. It's so wrong, it's not just. And how does that get answered exactly? And you look at corrupt governments in Haiti and the number in Central Africa where the politicians and the leaders get incalculably rich while the people live in utter squalor and poverty. And you go, what's wrong with that? And then you look at the realities of what it is to be poor in this country, what that means for access to education and healthcare and so many other things. People stuck in generational poverty. And I wonder in the nature of this world, I don't find justice. And my heart wants to scream out, that's not right. And for any of you who have ever wanted to scream those words, that's 100% true. You're right. It isn't right. It's unjust. And it's not how God originally intended the world to be. In the beauty and in the origins of his creation, God created a just world where right and wrong was clear. But the problem with that is you and I rebelled. We broke away from that and everything broke with it. And so today, you and I have to deal with the reality of living in a world of injustice. And so if we see it every day, happens in our world, happens to us, then where do we find hope for living in that kind of world? Like, how do, how do we ever go to sleep at night when our head hits the pillow, knowing that there are some things that are absolutely wrong? How do I sleep if I really believe that that never gets answered, that those people who are doing the wrong things and the violent things, that they just get away with it? How can I ever find peace in that? Well, friends, I will tell you, I believe the hope for that is Easter. And I've been telling you this for weeks now, that Easter is not a single Sunday experience, but the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, should give us hope every single day that we live, every day that we draw breath, because it changes our fundamental understanding of the kingdom that God inaugurates with Jesus as king at the moment of the resurrection. And what we see today in this ongoing series, Rediscovering Hope in 2 Peter, is again the way in which the resurrection defines the reality of that kingdom. And what I think is so important about about 2 Peter is that Peter is, is about to die. These are the last words that Peter ever writes. So, 2 Peter is, is it. He knows that his death is coming. He was, he was crucified upside down um, because he believed he was not worthy uh, to die in the same manner as Christ. And so he was crucified upside down just months after this was written. So, if you're Peter and you know that's coming, What you're going to write in your last letter to the church is going to be the absolute most important stuff, the things that you absolutely want the church to remember. And Peter was writing to a church that was living very much in a time of darkness, hostility towards the church. Man, it was bleak. They were confused. They were bewildered. The Romans hated them. The Jewish people hated them. There was tremendous social and economic cost to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so they're wondering, how how do we live with this kind of hostility towards us, with this kind of persecution, this many people that hate us? And so Peter starts off and he talks about the problem in the first couple of chapters, but then he gets to verse 11 and he, he identifies the elephant in the room. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way. In other words, eventually... Sin is going to cause the world to collapse in upon itself until Jesus comes back the second time. That's ultimately where we're heading. Things aren't getting better, they're getting worse. So then he asks this question. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Wow, I love that question. You know, just in general, the questions that get asked in scripture, anytime there's a question, stop and ask yourself, what does that mean? What kind of people ought we to be in a culture today where it feels like it's getting a little darker, where it feels like more and more people are hostile to the evangelical, a biblical church. People are hostile to God's word, right? As soon as you say that you you go to this church or that church or you believe in the scriptures, man, all the walls go up and we get these condescending looks like we're idiots for believing what we do. In that season of life, that's probably only going to get more challenging. What kind of people ought we to be? It's a phenomenal question. But thankfully, Peter answers it. He says, but God has promised us. He says, it's like this now, but here's what's coming. God's promised us a new heaven and a new earth where justice will rule. So then make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. Peter says, what kind of people ought we to be? He says, we in the church, even when people hate you, even when people are opposed to you, he says, walk righteously, walk justly, do the right thing, be blameless, be spotless, do the right thing even when doing the right thing is the hard thing. Because you know what? People notice that. You know, I just... Sometimes I get so frustrated by Christian people because they just don't do the little things. And when they don't do the little things, other people look at them and go, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want any part of that. It's like, you know, when when you're working at your job and everybody knows, everybody knows you get an hour for lunch. You get an hour. But there's that one guy who obviously talks a lot about his faith. He goes to church all the time, but every day he takes an hour and 20 minutes for lunch. Right And the boss isn't there. I mean, we're post-COVID, right? So there's no, there's no sense of accountability. No one's gonna tell him not to, but everybody knows. You get 60 minutes for lunch, and every day he games the system. Every day he takes an extra 20 minutes and acts like no, nobody's, none, none the wiser. What does that say about the church? You know, just do the right thing, because it's the right thing. Because it says something about who you are. Years ago, I used to play golf with this guy and he'd hit his ball in the sand trap. Not that I ever do that, but he would. And he'd hit his ball out of the sand trap and he'd never rake the trap. And I, which is what you're supposed to do. If you don't play golf, you hit out of it, you rake the trap. And finally I said, hey, how about raking the trap? And his answer was, there are other people who do that. And I'm like, well, what about the four guys behind you? Right, and so I wind up raking the trap. Just do the right thing. As Christians in this age, it's just a part of our witness to just do the thing that we know is the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. And then beyond that, in our personal life, we live justly in our personal lives, then we live justly in our social lives. We look into our culture as a church and we go, you know what, where are there things that are wrong that I can help right? That's the social justice part of it. And please understand when I use the term social justice, I'm not using it the way newspapers and the media use that term. Social justice in the church means the restoration of the right order of things, the way that God originally created and ordered the world to be. All right, so the social justice, the restoration of the right order of things. But the problem with all of this is this runs 100% contrary to the way modern culture works. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Let me refresh your mind in what we said. If we, as our culture has chosen to do, if you remove God from the equation, and not just God, not just the Christian God, but any notion of a higher power, as our culture is wont to do today, then everything is permissible. This is what the French existential philosopher and noted anti-Christian Jean-Paul Sartre wrote. He said, when you remove God, everything is permissible. We no longer can assume the notion of good or moral behavior because there's no higher power to think it or declare it. We're just left to the plane of human beings. So so you see what happens. Right and wrong disappear in the absence of God because we're just on the plane of human beings. You and I decide what's right and wrong. And the problem is, if I think something is wrong, you can say, well, you may think it's wrong, but I think it's perfectly fine. I don't think it's wrong. So if there's no clarity on right and wrong, then if we can't define the wrong, then there's never gonna be any justice, is there? Because we can't even define what injustice is. Now, everything is permissible. The foundation for a moral society collapses, and that society begins to tear. The fabric begins to pull at the seams and collapse is its ultimate destiny. But in the kingdom of God, it's different. In the kingdom of God, he says, we're gonna be a just society and a just culture. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 4:5: this is why God gave us the law. Moses says, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering, so that others will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So Moses says, other nations are gonna look at our laws and decrees and go, wow, that's really wise and understanding. Think about it. What has been the foundation for morality in nearly every civilization in the world from the beginning of time, the Old Testament decrees and laws of God. What are the standards in nearly every culture in the world for how we define right and wrong? It's the Judeo-Christian scriptural values, laws and decrees that are found in the Old Testament. Goes back to Genesis 1, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. To subdue is to bring order out of something. We were to take from what God has made and we're to order it, which means you create boundaries, you create laws, you create what God declares to be right and wrong. This is okay, this is not. And so in doing that, you create a culture that is ordered because that's the nature and character of God. God is not chaos. God is order. Those cultures then reflect on the nature and the character and the glory of God. And so friends this is how we understand at the resurrection that order and justice matter because see again culturally everybody says well love wins right it's the love doesn't matter what you do just come on in god loves you enough to overcome all that that's not true love wins it does but only because god was willing to crush and crucify himself in order to overcome your injustice and my injustice and what we perpetrate in this world. He dies. He gives his life because justice demands that injustice be answered, that wrongs be righted. So at the cross, Jesus rights our wrongs and imputes to us his righteousness. That's what the resurrection tells us. That injustice has to be answered. So friends, we... We come into this kingdom inaugurated at the resurrection of Jesus. And we know, I said this a couple weeks ago, the kingdom has come on earth substantially, but not fully. So we're not gonna see a fully just kingdom of God this side of heaven. But here's what the church can do. The church, we know the kingdom of God has come substantially. So the church can help bring justice. We can help bring a greater sense of justice through our personal lives and how we live, as well as what's happening socially in the world. Tim Keller says it's gonna happen in three different ways. He's gonna, the resurrection tells us there's gonna come a day when there will be physical justice. You look at Jesus and all of the torture and the scars and the wounds and everything he suffered in this life more than any other human being. And yet he rises on the third day at the resurrection. He rises physically, bodily resurrection. Are all his scars and wounds gone? They're not. They're just glorified. So what does it tell us? It tells us that one day, all of the indignities that you and I have suffered physically, all of our humiliations, you may have suffered physically in a violent way. All your disease, all your pains, When your baby is born and it has trisomy 18, all the physical injustices of the world. Think about Craig Doris. I heard Joni Erickson Tata interviewed one time. She dove into a lake at 17, paralyzed from the neck down. They said, How do you how do you stay joyful? She said, it's the hope of heaven that awaits me and the restoration of my physical body, the reality that I will not always be like this. There's physical justice. And one day Craig's going to get up out of that chair and he's going to run. And he's not going to grow weary. And see, what can we do then as the church? We can create a taste of that physical justice that's to come, right? So we support ministries like Grace Medical Home. They bring a taste of physical justice. Shepherd's Hope, hospice care. When a pastor comes to see you when you're ill or you're in the hospital, we're trying to just bring you a taste of the physical justice that is to come. Secondly, there's going to be psychological justice. You think about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and he's so emotionally, psychologically anguished. He's so filled with dread and fear. He sweats drops of blood and yet at the resurrection on the third day, he rises and inaugurates a kingdom of peace. He was declared in Isaiah to be the prince of peace. He says in John 14 that after he leaves, he says, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not As the world gives, it's not gonna be like the earthly kingdom works. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. So let not your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. And so people, all the things, all the injustices that we've suffered emotionally, all the betrayals, our doubts, our confusion, our fear, our shame, our guilt, it gets swallowed up resurrection there will come psychological justice so as christian people as a church what do we do to bring a taste of the psychological justice that is to come we offer things like christian counseling right because that brings a taste of the peaceable kingdom we try to offer things like pastoral care where we come to to visit you in your grief we talk to you we want to help you through those moments Ministries like Stephen ministers in our church, people who are trained to help you walk through particularly difficult seasons. We're trying to help bring a taste of psychological and emotional justice. And then the third thing is social justice is going to come. Again, it's the restoration of the right order of things. But but what did God say about the nature of his kingdom? He said, my kingdom relationally is going to be a kingdom of love. He said, behold, I I give you a new commandment. Love one another. But see, what we see socially in the world is division and hatred and relational brokenness and so many things that are divided. And so we as Christian people need to move against that. Tim Keller writes, on earth, what passes for love is a selfish, instrumental use of desirable persons to supply our selfish and envious needs. All right, stop right there for a second. That's exactly what I told you two weeks ago. Remember, if if you don't know that you're loved by God, first and foremost, if your cup isn't filled with the love of God, then you will always make a selfish instrumental use of desirable people to get what you need. You're gonna try to fill your cup in other ways. But he goes on, in the new creation, we'll know Jesus, the infinite fountain of love. We will love one another for his sake and for their sake. All relationships will be finally right and just. So you see what happens in the kingdom of God. All the things that have been created because of broken human beings trying to get their needs met because they don't understand the love of God. All the things that break, like racism and human trafficking and classism and divorce and war And all, I could keep going, all those things. When our cup has been filled, we can now move as the kingdom of God to bring people a taste of social relational justice. We can begin to love and serve how? tell it to you all the time without expectation or condition. Because your cup's been filled, you don't need anything back. So you can go down to the Coalition for the Homeless, you can go down to Compassion Corner and you can just serve homeless people because it's the right thing to do. You don't need anything back. You don't need anything from them. Your cup's been filled. You can go down to Samaritan Village and you can try to work with women who've been rescued from human trafficking because that experience is so unjust to them physically and emotionally and socially. And so we do everything we can to bring to them a taste of social justice and renewal. Kovatis, that's the reason we gave so much money to help Ukrainian refugees because what's happened to them is unjust in a social world. Broken relationship created that. So friends, the hope of the resurrection, physical, psychological, social justice come personally and then we as a church begin to move even though the kingdom hadn't fully come, we can bring people a taste of it, right? And then here's the cool thing that happens when we live that way that actually becomes an evangelistic tool in the world. Think about it. Deuteronomy 4.8 says this. Moses is again talking about the law. What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? No other nation has the kind of justice that we, that we affirm as Christians. So you've seen this happen a ton. What happens in the world? Somebody finds an envelope with $50,000 in it, right? And they go, they find the envelope and maybe, you know, a 16-year-old student goes, oh, I'm gonna give this back to the the maitre d'. You know, I found it in my chair at the restaurant and he gets it to the original owner and then what happens? It's on the news. And the newspapers say, oh, there was a 16-year-old kid. He returned the envelope with $50,000 in it and then they interview the person who lost the 50 grand and what does that person say? It restored my faith in humanity. You see what happens? When, when we just live justly, when we do justice, the way Micah says, other people see it and they go, Wow, maybe there is a way of living in the world that's right and just and and good. Maybe people will do the right thing. Don't wait to find an envelope with 50 grand in it. Just do that every day in the little things. And I think that it becomes this incredible witness for who we are as a just and a righteous seeking Christian people. We want to honor God in that way. Then I'll, I'll close with this. We can talk about the need for justice, we can talk about all the injustice that we see in those things need to be made right. But, but ultimately, if you think about that much at all, that comes all the way around, and it comes back to you. Because what we say is, oh, I want justice, I just don't want it for me. Right? We, we know. We do many, many things that aren't right, that aren't blameless, that are disobedient before the Lord. But here's what Easter tells you as well. God has justified you in Christ. It's the theological doctrine of our justification that as you stand before God, Christ by his shed blood has imputed his righteousness to you. So before the Lord, you've been given justification. When God sees you, you stand rightly before him as the gift of God's grace to you in Jesus. So as we have received our justification, then how could we not move into the world as God's forgiven, loved, and grace-filled people to be a people who seek justice? It's not just that Easter changes the spiritual dynamic of our lives and we realize, oh, I'm going to live forever. It tells us something far greater. It tells us something when Jesus is raised back into the physical world. It tells us this world matters. It tells us that in the coming kingdom of God, God is not going to tolerate injustice. And so he calls you and me to bring a taste of the just and peaceable kingdom, physically, psychologically, personally, and socially. And as we do it, it restores the hope of others. They see us and they go, wow, maybe there is a way of living that's true and right and good. And I wanna be part of that. Let's grow to be that kind of a church and that kind of a people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of Easter, the power of resurrection that inaugurates this new kingdom in which we no longer live the way the earthly kingdom lives, We live with an understanding of justice and the hope of justice that is so often unavailable to people in the world. They see these things happening and they think there's no answer. Father, there is hope in Christian community. We can bear witness to that hope into an ever-darkening world. Physically, psychologically, socially, personally. Father, I just pray your spirit would move in us Help us to do the right thing, the godly thing, even when doing the godly thing is the hard thing. And wherever we can, Lord, may we be about right action, about doing justice, moving into our world to make the wrong things right and ordered and glorifying to you. We pray it in the name of Christ, our Lord, amen.